I'm Cameron Strang, and welcome to Unedited. What are the most important books written in the last 20 years about the intersection of faith and justice is undoubtedly The Hole in Our Gospel by my guest today, Rich Stearns. Rich was a very successful corporate CEO, which you'll hear about, and he left it all for something more significant. For the last 20 years, he's led World Vision, the largest Christian humanitarian organization in the world. World Vision works in relief efforts, holistic development, and advocacy, working with children, families, and communities to overcome poverty and injustice. I've actually experienced a lot of World Vision's work firsthand. Uh, I've had the opportunity to be on the front lines of the drought in Somaliland earlier this year, refugee camps on the Syrian border, the slums of Palestine and other places. I've met the people whose lives have been saved by their work. World Vision has a unique strategy of holistic change. They work in communities to make sustainable impact affecting education, healthcare, economic development, and the promotion of justice. The goal is always to eventually hand the keys over and leave. They work with local leadership to give a hand up, not just handouts. It's not hyperbole to say that Rich Stearns' vision, faith and leadership has literally saved millions of lives and changed the world. Just last month, Rich retired from his position at World Vision. As they transitioned to a new president and a new era, I wanted to sit down with him to talk about his personal journey, what he's seen change in the church as it relates to justice and the challenges ahead as he hands the baton to a new generation. Rich's story shows how the gospel, the whole gospel, was always meant to be a world-changing social revolution. And then it's a revolution that begins with each of us. I'm excited for you to hear this. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Rich Stearns, unedited. Well, Rich Stearns is the uh, head of World Vision and uh, after 20 years has announced that he's stepping down as CEO this year. And um, we're really honored that you're here to talk to us today. Uh, I'm interested to hear more about your story and all the things that's happened at World Vision and, and also talk about the future. Um, we're honored that you're here. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Cameron. Great to be here. Absolutely. Um, so before you went to World Vision, and I'm interested in kind of people's journeys, um, before you went to World Vision, you were the CEO of some major corporations. Tell me about that part of your life. Well, yeah, I've had kind of a long and tortured career. And I, <laughs> when I talk to younger people, I, I kind of tell them to be patient, you know, take heart. Um, your first job is probably not your dream job. But, uh, you know, I have a degree in neurobiology. And I went from neurobiology to get an MBA at the Wharton Business School in Marketing then my first job after business school was at Gillette, selling shaving cream and deodorant. Um, uh, so I did about two years at Gillette. As a neurobiologist, yeah, well, you then went into marketing and then went to shaving cream. Then I went to shaving cream and deodorant. <laughs> let's not forget that. And then um, I was answered a want ad. Uh, you know, Parker Brothers Games, Salem, Massachusetts, was looking for a marketing assistant. And so I sent off a resume and I got the job at Parker Brothers. Well, the next nine years, I was doing toys and games and video games, and I became CEO of Parker Brothers when I was 33. It was like that Tom Hanks movie, Big. It was like a kid in an adult body, and I just thrived in the toy business, and I helped Parker Brothers 
get into video games in the early days of video games. Uh, we introduced the first Star Wars video game in the United States for home use. We brought Frogger to the United States for the Atari system. Sure. So I had this phenomenal kid career that was amazing. And then I got fired when I was 35 uh, in one of these corporate takeovers and change of ownership. Well, I ended up at uh, Lennox China, the fine china and tableware company. And I did 11 years at Lennox uh, selling luxury goods to the wealthy, essentially, and was CEO there. And then in 1998, a headhunter called me and said, World Vision is looking for a new uh, president. And that, that's a longer story, but uh, it was really a call on my life from God to you know, leave the corporate world and uh, do something directly in the kingdom. And so I joined uh, World Vision in 1998, and I've been there for the last 20 years. So, What was the state of the church and justice in 1998? Um, you know, Relevance started in 2000, and we've seen a shift at least in our generation that we that we connect with, we've seen a shift um, in, in how the church and social justice work have kind of um, interacted. Growing up in the church, my recollection of the era that you came to World Vision was more that um, anything international should be missions-focused, not aid or relief-focused. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what you stepped into. Yeah. So talk to me about the difference between then- and, and the changes that you've seen in the last 20 years at, at World Vision? Yeah, well, you know, I think there's almost always been an uneasiness in the church about social justice, you know, and there's been this dichotomy that you're either an evangelism guy or you're a social justice guy, you know. But if you're a social justice guy, you're soft on the gospel, and if you're an evangelism guy, you're not very concerned about social justice, feeding the hungry, and so on. And that is such a false dichotomy. Um, when you read scripture, it's, it's really both and. It was always intended to be both and. And in fact, the book I wrote a few years ago, The Hold on Our Gospel, was really written to say the gospel is so much more than just getting somebody to pray the sinner's prayer. You know, the gospel that Jesus brought, the good news, the kingdom of God, was about changing the world. It was about changing the human heart and the human soul from the inside out, but then it was about going into the world and reforming, repairing, going into the world's brokenness, right? Um, We live in a broken world, broken families, broken cities, broken relationships, broken institutions, um, uh, refugees, poverty, just brokenness. And uh, I think the Church of Jesus Christ, when it's at its best, we're like the world's firefighters. We're running into the fires when everybody else is running away from them. And so when you put those things together, the whole gospel, W-H-O-L-E, you have the most powerful change agent in in human history uh, to change the world, which is why the church grew at remarkable rates in the first and second centuries, uh, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of plagues. uh, The Christians were rushing in to care for the sick during the plagues. Um, They were welcoming the poor, feeding the poor. And the faith was so attractive to people that it grew and it grew and it grew and it grew. And so here we are 20 centuries later, uh, and the danger is that we've, uh, we've dumbed down our faith to the point where it's just about praying the sinner's prayer at a prayer breakfast and then going back to the, to the party, whatever you were doing before. Um, my Christian faith is about transform people, transforming the world. 
and combining that passion for social justice, these values that Christ gave us with the truth of the gospel that we're forgiven uh, and we're reconciled with God. And now we want to go out and reconcile with our brothers and sisters. So, um, yeah, and I've seen, uh, I've seen that break down in the last 20 years. And, and one of the reasons I wrote my book was I wanted people to see that, no, it's both and. It's the whole gospel. Um, in simple words, I say it's a great commandment and the great commission, right? The great commandment is to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's about external relationships and caring for people. The Great Commission is about making disciples in all nations. Um, and here's the thing that World Vision has learned. When you live into the Great Commandment, it is a catalyst for the Great Commission. When you walk with people in their suffering, when you feed the hungry, care for the sick, welcome the refugees, when you do those things, it opens their heart to hear the gospel. And it's just such a powerful way to enter into the lives of other people and, uh, and, and not just speak the truth, but demonstrate the truth to them, demonstrate the gospel. What was it in your personal journey that, you know, kind of gave you that perspective? I mean, not just looking at your career, I mean, but going from games to luxury goods to now heading up World Vision. Something formative happened in you and your worldview in that time to give you the vision and the heart yeah. to, to lead World Vision. What was it that gave you that? So I've got a funny story. Um, I became a Christian at the Wharton Business School. I may be the only person ever that's become a Christian at the Wharton School of Business where a different deity is worshiped there. Yeah. And, but I, I gave my life to Christ at the Wharton School and I made a commitment that day that I would live my life for Christ. I would go where he called me to go. I would do what he called me to do. Um, and I prayed that sinner's prayer and invited Christ into my heart. And uh, a few months later, I got engaged to the young woman who had helped lead me to Christ. And here's the funny story. So after we got engaged, she said, well, we need to go down and register. We, we need to do a bridal registry. And I, I didn't know what that was. You know, what is a bridal registry? Well, you, you register for your fine china and your crystal and your silver and the things you want, you know, as a couple when you're married. And, and I got really righteous and said, as long as there are children starving in the world, we're not going to own fine china and crystal. I said, <laughs> What a waste of money. You know, that could, money could be given to the poor. You know, that was my, my young, idealistic Christian faith. How well, old were you at the time? I was 24. I know a lot of 24-year-olds that are like that. 24. Well, here's the, the humor in this. So 25 years later, what, who am I then? I'm the CEO of the largest China crystal and silver company in America. Yeah. Talk about irony, right? Yeah. So when that phone rang in 1998, and it was this recruiter looking for the president of World Vision, uh, to me, it was God on the other end of that line saying, do you remember that young man? Mm -hmm. Do you remember that young man from 1974 who was so passionate about feeding the hungry that he wouldn't even buy fine china, wouldn't even allow his bride to register for fine china? Look at you now. Look what you've become. And, but if you still care, if that young man is still inside you, if you still care about the poor and the hungry, I have a job that needs to be done. Wow. And I'm calling you to do it. And it was really a, a powerful moment in my life because as a young Christian, I was passionate about that stuff. I was passionate about world missions. We went to Park Street Church in Boston after we got married. Great missions church. And, uh, and I developed this heart for the world and heart for the poor that didn't leave me. But I just assumed I'd do my career and I'd write my checks and give faithfully to charities. World Vision was our number one uh, giving charity that we gave to uh, back in 1998. Uh, but I never dreamed I'd actually 
leave my corporate world and, and go there. But, but it, it was something inside me all along that I think God had put there. And when the time was right, he said, now it's time for you to go and do this. For, for those in our audience who don't know, and I'm a huge supporter of World Visions, but for those in our audience who don't know, tell us about the work of World Vision. I think there's confusion. I mean, it's like, oh, it's child sponsorships? Well, it's so much more. Tell, tell, yeah. tell about what, what World Vision does globally. You know, World Vision is really an amazing institution for the kingdom of God. Um, just first of all, the scope and the scale of World yeah. Vision, it's about 45,000 full-time staff in 100 countries around the world. We estimate that we, we touch the lives of more than 100 million people a year through our ministry. Wow. So we're often referred to as an NGO, non-governmental organization. And World Vision as a Christian organization is actually bigger than Save the Children, bigger than CARE, bigger than Oxfam, uh, bigger than Habitat for Humanity, all these household names that everyone knows. Um, and God has somehow blessed this ministry to, to grow and be you know, truly global uh, as, as a kind of a kingdom organization. Uh, so what do we do? Uh, typically, we talk about relief development and advocacy. So most people understand relief. You know, It's the world's emergency room. Uh, people are in trouble. It could be Hurricane Harvey in Houston or uh, Hurricane in Puerto Rico. Uh, it could be an earthquake, the Haiti earthquake in 2010, the Asian tsunami of 2004, the refugee crisis in Syria right today. So those are relief events where people have lost everything. They're desperate. It could be a civil war. It could be you know, a natural disaster. Last year, World Vision responded to 170 humanitarian emergencies around the world. Some were small in scale and some were massive in mm-hmm. scale. And so we go in and just try to help people who've lost everything they have and try to help them get back on their feet. So right now, for example, in the Syrian crisis, uh, we're helping, we touch about two to two and a half million refugees in a given year uh, who have fled from the war in Syria. They fled to Jordan, they fled to uh, Lebanon, some to Iraq and Turkey. And World Vision is there providing sanitation, clean water, shelter, uh, basic health services, education for young children. I saw it with my own eyes. I was in... Yeah, you took a trip with us. Yeah, with uh, Steve Haas. Uh, Very early, well, not early in the crisis. It had been going for a few years, but World Vision's work in Lebanon was, you know, small in comparison to the need at the time. It's changed since then. So we were there very early. Steve was kind of front lines. We were in the Bekaa Valley where, Mm -hmm. you know, there were tent cities uh, on the border between Lebanon and Syria. And um, World Vision was there. And mm-hmm. it was interesting to talk to the refugees being helped. I mean, it was literally life and death for them. Yeah. I mean, the, the the relief, the sanitation you guys brought, you went into the tent cities and brought porta potties. I mean, there was yeah. nowhere for them to yeah. to go. Um, uh, once they were there longer term, um, I saw schools and classrooms getting developed for the children because the children were trapped. I mean, yeah. it was it was amazing to see you know, it's like it was it was at the tension point between relief and development because it was like this isn't ending anytime soon, but right. we're providing life sustaining relief help, yeah. you know, yeah. or aid. And then it's like, well, now we need to actually start thinking longer term because it's yeah. not like we're going to rebuild something after Hurricane Harvey. Right. It's, it's not that simple. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's kind of what we were there learning about. Yeah. But just to see the scale and scope of or the enormity of the need and how World Vision was helping with urgent urgent needs and then also kind of setting up for long-term hope 
mm-hmm. for people who had no hope. I mean, if even if they went, if the war ended and they went back home, their their cities were leveled. You know, there's a generation yeah. of children that would have had no education and no hope, and and World yeah. Vision was there trying to um, meet those needs. It was really powerful. yeah. And you know, one thing I've learned over the years is that. Um, People have lost everything. You can provide sanitation. You can provide clean water. You can put them in a shelter, a tent. Uh, but what they really need is hope, right? Uh, yeah. Because most of us can live without amenities in our lives if we have to, but nobody can live without hope, right. you know. And in fact, I was on a trip to Rwanda this year, and uh, we had worked in this community for ten years and brought clean water. and And one of the men I met said we were a people living without dreams. We were living without dreams, and World Vision rekindled our dreams. We, we now have a hope for the future, a hope for our children. But I, I just thought that phrase, we were a people living without dreams. And there's so many people in the world that are living without dreams today because of their poverty or their circumstances. And as you said, when there's a relief situation like that, it often morphs into development. Yeah. So what is development, relief and development? Development, I call it the hard work in the hard places over the long haul. It's working in a poor community where poverty is really bad and working alongside that community for 10, even 20 years, trying to address the root causes of their poverty because we believe God did not intend human beings to live in poverty, Uh, that he's given us gifts and talents and abilities to to live a full and prosperous life. Um, And so World Vision's development programs are about helping poor communities uh, uh, attain prosperity for their community and a better future for their children. So what does that look like? You know, if you think about global poverty, and it's hard for Americans to imagine this because uh, we haven't experienced it here. I mean, we do have poverty in the United States, but it's it's a different kind of poverty. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what are the causes of poverty? Well, imagine if you didn't have water, access to water, and you had to walk two or three miles to a filthy water hole to fetch your water every day. Uh, you know, I've met 75-year-old men and women who had never in their life taken a clean bath or a clean shower because they've never had access to water, if you can imagine. Uh, so that right there is a, is a, is a game changer and, and a killer if you don't have clean water. But water, uh, regular supply of food, reliable food, uh, nutritious food coming in, basic health. Uh, a cut on your leg can be a death sentence in a developing country mm-hmm. because you have no access to health care or medicines or antibiotics. So an infection can take your child away. An abscessed tooth can take your child away. Uh, So food, water, health. Education is always important um, in a community. Economic development. uh, There are no jobs in many of these communities, and they have no income. Uh, So they're subsistence livers. They live off the land. They grow what they can grow. Maybe they sell some in the market if they can. So we're trying to help create jobs and stimulate an economic engine in these communities. And then there are other issues, cultural issues, gender issues, child protection issues. Well, the thing about poverty of that kind is there's no magic bullet. You know, you, uh, I, I, I'm kind of bemused by some of the organizations that all we do is food or all we do is health or all we do is clean water. Well, if you're living in that kind of poverty, it's great if you have access to nutritious food, but it's not enough. I mean, if you don't have clean water, if you don't have education, if you don't have uh, basic health services. So World Vision has uh, developed capacity in all of those different dimensions of human life. So we do water. In fact, we're the largest supplier of clean water in the world. Um, three to four million people a year receive clean water through our programs. 
Um, we teach farmers new farming methods, so we improve the food supply and the reliability of the food supply. Um, we do microloans. We have a we give over a billion dollars a year of revolving loans to the poor, where they might borrow two hundred dollars to buy some chickens to breed and then sell the eggs and sell chickens. Um, when you do all of those things uh, over a period of time and you empower the community to do these things for themselves, we don't give people handouts, we try to give them a hand up. Uh, after 10 or 15 or sometimes 20 years, that community now is ready to stand on its own two feet, mm-hmm. ready to solve its own problems, and ready to be a people that have dreams uh, now. And so World Vision hands them the keys and says, you know, we taught you everything we know, you guys are doing well, uh, we're going to leave, you drive now, we're going to go to another community 100 miles away and start over. And so that's relief and development. Uh, we want to see people realize their God-given potential, and we believe they can uh, with just some education, some training, some basic knowledge, and some inputs from World Vision. I think it's interesting that um, the more I learned about World Vision, I, there's a couple of mis- misconceptions that people have about nonprofit work. You know, when you learn about the developing world or the need that's out there, you see a lot of, um, you know, a lot of organizations are going to to focus on certain aspects and they don't collaborate. That's the perception is like there's no partnership, no communication. One of the things that's interesting about World Vision that I like so much is that when I go to the front lines of places globally, World Vision's there working with other organizations. I love Charity Water. And you guys are one of their biggest partners in actually building the wells right. that Charity Water raises the money for. Um, I love Kiva.org, microlending. And, you know, Kiva is actually, you know, just kind of a face for many World Vision microlending projects. I was in Haiti after the earthquakes and I went to a Convoy of Hope warehouse, you know, where they were, you know, they would ship in all the, the food supplies that they yeah. distributed every day. And in the, in the Convoy of Hope warehouse, there were rows and rows and rows of World Vision so, you know, um, food boxes and yeah. stuff. And I love that you guys are partnering with organizations to propel each other versus kind of competing yeah. with each other, which I think many organizations kind of do. You know, they're this denomination yeah. and they don't work with that denomination. So you guys do something very unique. Um, I, I, what, are, what are some of the biggest challenges that you've had to face as heading World Vision and, and, and the, the moving target of the need is enormous and, 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 and trying to rally the church, really being a Christian NGO, um, to, to care for others. Yeah. Um, I, within the church, there are Christians that, that quote the scripture, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, and that's their compulsion to help. Then there are Christians who quote the scripture that the poor will always be among you. And that's their excuse to not care. And they just want to go evangelize or something. Yeah. What's been the biggest challenge leading this organization and trying to get the Christian American church really to yeah. engage globally? Well, first of all, let me say that um, I love the church. You know, I've, ever since I became a Christian, I've been involved in my local church. And uh, um, I think the church is God's institution on earth to lead the revolution that Jesus launched. And, um, but I would say our greatest obstacle um, in my 20 years has been apathy. Um, mm-hmm. So when you live in an affluent nation, and we are indisputably the wealthiest nation of Christians in the history of Christendom, we have more resources, not just financial, which we have, 
not just financial resources, but educational resources, scientific, technical resources, medical resources, uh, you name it. The United States has it. And since we're largely a Christian nation, about 74, 75% of Americans identify as Christian, um, we have this uh, responsibility, I believe, that God has entrusted this country and the churches in this country with this bounty uh, of resource. But affluence has a way of numbing the senses and dulling the senses. Um, uh, Most of us are wrapped up in our own personal lives, and many of our churches are focused on inward issues. You know, what are we going to do with our kids at camp this summer? Um, what, are the, what does the women's ministry look like? What does the men's ministry look like? Uh, what about our new building program? So uh, there's a real tendency for churches to be inwardly focused. In fact, one of the statistics in my book, The Hole in Our Gospel, uh, was that if you look at the budgets of American churches, it's estimated that only 2% of American church budgets go to international missions of any kind. The other 98% is spent right here in America, most of it spent right here on the church and the members of the church and the salaries and all of that. And um, again, wealthiest nation of Christians in history, but only 2% of our budget goes to change the world outside of our borders. And so um, it's, it's a little bit like the frog in the kettle. I, I don't think churches are intentionally trying to be insular and inwardly focused. Uh, I think it just kind of happens. You're like a frog in the kettle and you wake up and you realize, gee, we're not really doing much internationally anymore or, you know, we're not doing enough in our own community. Uh, So, you know, in the Old Testament, the people of God needed the prophets to kind of shake them up and, you know, wake them up to God's justice and God's compassion for the poor. And so you've got these thundering prophets in the Old Testament that were basically holding the plumb line up to Israel and saying, you're not measuring up to God's concern for the alien and the stranger, the widow and the orphan. You're not doing justice. In fact, you're exploiting the poor. Mm. Um, I think the church in any day and age needs its prophets, right? People that um, bring a message of uh, uh, radical transformation to the church. They bring a message and a challenge to go and make a difference and to align themselves with God's sense of justice and compassion. Maybe the greatest example during my tenure at World Vision was the AIDS pandemic. Um, uh, As the new guy, my first trip to Africa, 1998, I'd never been to Africa before, brand new president of World Vision. I go to ground zero in the AIDS pandemic. And all I knew about AIDS at that point was it was a gay disease that started in San Francisco and it primarily affected the, the gay community. That's what I thought. That's what most Americans thought. Mm-hmm. What I realized uh, on that first trip to Africa is that AIDS was ravaging the entire continent of Africa, not as a gay disease, but as a heterosexually transmitted disease. It had left 13 million children orphaned, and something like three or four million people a year were dying of AIDS. And it was this epidemic uh, that was eviscerating African society. Um, Whole generations of uh, African young people were dying of AIDS and leaving children behind to be raised by grandparents. And so I came back to the United States and all I could talk about was what's happening with AIDS in Africa. And I'd get these blank stares from Americans who knew nothing about this. Churches weren't doing anything about it. And I said to my team at World Vision, I said, we got to tackle this thing. We've got to We've got to take this issue to the American church. And I'll never forget my marketing guy 
he, you know, I was the new guy. They're kind of looking around the room. It's almost like, should you tell them or should I tell them? You know, the new guy. And he finally said, look, we're a G-rated ministry. We're about children and families. This is an R-rated issue. The church is not going to respond to AIDS. Yeah. They're not going to give to that. Donors are not going to support that. You know, this is a losing battle. And I remember saying, I said, well, you know what? Then the church is wrong. Yeah. And if we don't tell them, who's going to? Yeah. And, uh, and so I kind of rallied my team and I said, we're going after this issue with the American church. Now, what happened over the next few years was remarkable because uh, we went after this issue. Um, Samaritan's Purse went after this issue. Uh, leaders like Rick Warren and Bill Hybels and others started speaking about AIDS. And together, we literally turned the juggernaut of the American church to face the AIDS pandemic. Yeah. And by the year 2003, 2004, American Christians were all over this issue, sending aid to Africa, uh, giving to World Vision, giving to Samaritan's Purse. And then President Bush, the PEPFAR initiative yeah. was passed by both houses of Congress, the biggest uh, foreign assistance program since the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe after World War II. It was $15 billion over five years. And one of the reasons it passed Congress is because Christians from every state of the union were telling their Congress people, support this. We need to do this. This is the right thing for our country to do. And the whole course of the AIDS pandemic, the whole trajectory changed. Um, drugs were, became available through PEPFAR. Uh, Christian organizations, secular organizations were going in uh, to care for widows and orphans. And today, 20 years later, AIDS is not totally defeated, but it's under control. Mm -hmm. And people are living to raise their own children because they've got medications. So that was an example of where advocating to the church, uh, once the church understood the facts, they did the right thing. Yeah. It, was, it was a case of ignorance. They just didn't know. I remember, I remember the era in the 90s, moral majority era and all that, where Christian leaders like purposefully kind of didn't care about AIDS because that was kind of a sin issue. And so to watch the pivot in the church over the next 10 years into the early 2000s, was stunning. And it, the, the advocacy thing is, is an interesting tension point for me. And I've heard this, not, not a tension point, I, but I've heard Christians wrestling with this, that the gospel talks about the church should be the solution. We should go and do, and we should be the hands and feet. And the, the reality is, is what you just, the story you just said is PEPFAR was really the thing that at scale was able to address it yeah. significantly. Christians need to advocate, need to kind of steer our government to act, but but it was the governmental action that actually moved the needle. I, I, we, uh, you know, the, the malaria crisis. Um, you know, the the solution is um, is there. There's the solution to kind of eradicate malaria. It takes resources right. that are kind of beyond the scale of ten dollar donations, right. and and we need the government to act. And so there's yeah. this tension point with Christians who say, all right, well. Christ called the church to be the hands and feet, and we'll go do it. But the reality is, is we need the government to partner with the church. Yeah. And how do you how do you straddle that? How do you message that to church leaders yeah. to say like, oh, and by the way, we need you to support the government, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, it's really interesting. Well, first of all, it took the government to end slavery. Yeah. It took the government to promote civil rights right. and voting legislation. Um, you know, it took the government to clean up our rivers and our polluted sites and have some regulations around dumping and pollution. So government is a tool um, that 
has been instituted by God to do certain things and to play a role. And there are, there are some things that only the government can do because of the scale and government to government you know, programs where our government can speak to the government of an African country and, and whether it's about trade or whether it's about um, natural resources or whether it's about healthcare issues in that country. Uh, so government has a very critical role to play. And I find it interesting that Christians sometimes say, well, you know, we shouldn't, uh, this is not the government's job, it's the church's job. Well, we're very eager to have the government uh, represent us when it comes to abortion, uh, and we want the government to regulate or maybe even stop abortions. So as Christians, we want the government to do our bidding in certain things, right? Well, why wouldn't we also want the government to align with our values on caring for the poor uh, or promoting justice or protecting children or you know those kinds of things? So. Uh, I like to say you can't have it both ways. If you if you want to use the government to accomplish certain aspects of what I call a Christian agenda, then why would you not want the government to align with other aspects of what we believe to be Christian values, caring for the poor? And so uh, the government has a role to play, and we have a voice in our government, right? We have a we have a vote, and we have a voice. And so I know when the government talks about cutting foreign assistance programs, and I know people are going to die as a result of that. I mean, real people are going to die very soon when those programs are cut. Um, I use my voice and I say, look, this is, a, this is a moral issue. A budget, a federal budget is a moral document because within it are decisions that affect the lives of millions of people, not just around the world, but in our own country. And so part of being a nation with moral values is that uh, you try to take care of people as best you can. Now, we're not the caretaker for the entire world, but only about a half a percent of the federal budget is spent on foreign assistance programs, only about a half a percent on, on humanitarian programs. So people think it's 15, 20, 25 percent of our budget. It's one half of one percent. In fact, if you look at the donor nations, the 22 wealthiest nations in the world, uh, and what percent of their GDP they give to foreign assistance programs, Last time I looked, we ranked 21st out of 22 industrialized nations in giving as a percent of our GDP. So, so it's possible to be a fiscal conservative politically in, in the U.S. And, and not think that we need to slash our international development budget. In yeah, fact, yeah. I mean, you could be a fiscal conservative and think we should be giving more. Which yeah. is something that President Bush actually did. I mean, with Pepfar and whatever. yeah, you know, President Bush, who was a fiscal conservative, actually tripled foreign assistance funding during his eight years. Tripled. He did more for foreign assistance than any president uh, since USAID was established in the 1960s. Uh, he doesn't get a lot of credit for it, mm-hmm. um, but you think history will kind of? I think well, you know, already in Africa, you know, he's one of the most popular presidents in Africa yeah. because what he did with AIDS. Yeah, and they know what he did. Right. And uh, that will be a shining part of his legacy, you know, what he did for foreign assistance and hunger and um, HIV and AIDS. Yeah. I don't think people realize, you know, when, when the, the U.S. news cycle is, you know, discussing, you know, budget stuff and cutting this and cutting that, the, 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 the real tangible toll on life. And uh, when um, recently, uh, we, in fact, our current issue of Relevant, we have a story about the crisis in Somaliland, which mm-hmm. we went with uh, one of your team members to see firsthand. And it was, um, it was, it was uh, one of the most difficult things I've ever seen. And I've, I've been to a lot of places, not as many places 
Texas as you, but I've been to a lot of tough places. And um, going to Somaliland, which I didn't even know existed, you know, I mean, I was Somalia, but I didn't know about Somaliland. It is a completely primitive country. There's no infrastructure, there's no road. Yeah. And they are trapped, uh, both, both um, uh, political unrest and they can't, they don't have anywhere to go. And then also geographically, they're just on the coast and they're under an eight year drought. And we, they, they were kind of nomadic um, herdsmen as the, the, the 4 million people mm-hmm. that live in that region. And when you're in an eight year drought, the herds don't have any way to, yeah, to live and it's turned into desert and they're there and they're trapped and they can't go anywhere. They can't migrate. And we were talking to them and World Vision was there and just kind of like seeing the enormity of the scale of the need. And what was keeping them alive was, um, was these little debit cards that every month they got like $14 and they could buy their basic needs. And um, on December 31st, the funding for that program ended. Mm-hmm. And we were there in February. And they, we were there about six weeks after the funding ended. And we asked some of the people, like, what are you, what are you doing? And they said some of the, um, some of the, uh, it's tough to say the word shop. It's not a shop. There's no roads. There's no buildings. But like some of the tradesmen who, 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 who they would kind of have, they would trade the, the, the need, you know, the, they would have basic food or whatever. Uh, they're allowing the people to get into debt and get credit lines, you know, uh, assuming that the funding will come back. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if the funding doesn't come back, they're going to be indebted to these, you know, shopkeepers yeah. forever. And we said, well, what if the funding doesn't come back? And they said, well, our only hope is Allah. And the, the, like, they have no hope. I mean, yeah. they have no hope. They have no way to support themselves, sustain themselves. And, and America's foreign assistance funding, you know, just is a little line item on a budget. And they just slashed it by 40%. And there's millions of people who literally have no way to survive yeah. now. Yeah. And they know that. They know that it was an American decision and I'm, we're a couple of Americans, you right, know. Right. It was just very tough to see the the, the, yeah. the women and children and men and the grandmas who literally have nothing and have no hope yeah. because America decided to slash You know, here, here's the dichotomy. You know, there are a lot of American Christians that think we should not do so much overseas. We should cut our foreign assistance budget. But I would bet you I could take almost any American Christian to Somaliland and introduce them to some of the people you met. You met mothers and grandmothers and children. And, and then I'd ask them the question, do you want to cut their $14 a month? Right. Do you want to be the one that says, yeah, that family should perish because so it's not our Literally job. Literally so Most of us, if we met these people and really took a minute to understand what they're dealing with, we would give them the shirt off our back to help them. Absolutely. We would because we want to do the right thing. But somehow when you institutionalize it and you distance yourself from it, they become nameless, faceless people, and they become a political issue, right? It, right. I'm a fiscal conservative, so I'm going to stop sending so much money overseas. Well, um, these are human beings, you know? And yeah. one of the phrases I've been using lately uh, when I talk in different venues is, I said, you know, the most famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16, and here's what it does not say. It does not say, for God so loved the United States of America <laughs> that he gave his one and only son. Uh, it says, God shall love the world. And sometimes we behave as if John 3.16 says, God shall loved America. Um, and we're called to love the same world that Christ died for, that God sent his son to die for. And um, so engendering this compassion for the world's people 
is a struggle uh, for organizations like World Vision. Uh, and again, most of the Christians that I come into contact with and I preach at churches, they're really good people. Mm-hmm. And when they hear the real facts, and I always show photographs of the people I'm talking about yeah. from around the world, their hearts open. And all of a sudden those people become human. They're no longer an issue or a political football, they're, right. they're human. And um, um, you know, there, there have been people over the years that I've met around the world that have just rocked my world. And one of them was this little Syrian refugee girl I met in 2013 when we were just about, just starting to get involved with the Syrian refugees. A little girl named Haya, she was 10 years old. She'd seen her father killed uh, before her very eyes by ISIS. Uh, she had fled with her mother and sisters to Jordan, and she had written me a letter the night before I arrived because she knew some big shot from the United States was coming, and she wrote me a letter. And she stood up and read it, and then she sang me a song. I was, I was in tears. But she said, I'm writing to you, the people of the other world. Have you ever thought of the children of Syria, my country, Syria? I can almost memorize the letter. She said, Syria is dying. Uh, Syria is crying for her children. Her children were her candles and they're fading out. Please, my name is Haya and my father was killed. Help the children of Syria. Uh, this little 10-year-old girl, I get choked up even thinking about it now, but she just uh, symbolized for me the, the, the hurting people around the world, in particular the Syrian refugee crisis. Haya was Muslim. Uh, she was a Muslim little girl, but that didn't matter. She was a little girl whose dreams had been crushed, whose father had been taken, uh, who had little hope for the future, and it was her cry for help. It was her cry for help, and I've been reading that letter in churches as I preach uh, around the country to say, we are those people of the other world that she wrote to. Mm-hmm. Uh, Haya was imagining some people in another part of the world who lived in a place where children could be children, lived in a place where there were resources, lived in, in a situation where maybe they could help, uh, they could do something to help uh, me and my family and the people that are living like we are. And my job at World Vision for 20 years has been trying to connect people here with people over there to see um, how God has called us to be the answer to their prayers. Um, we can be the answer to highest prayer. We, we really can. The other thing I get, Cameron, is, well, they're Muslim. They're Muslim. Oh, yeah. I don't know where the Bible says we shouldn't help people of other faiths. In fact, the whole basis of the great commandment is to take the good news to people that have not heard the good news, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, what, what an opportunity to demonstrate the love of Christ, to demonstrate the gospel in action uh, to people of other faiths around the world. This, this is the great commandment catalyzing the great commission, right? We have the opportunity to, by loving people first, uh, they start to see Jesus in us uh, and through us, and that opens them to a conversation. How, how does World Vision straddle that tension as a Christian organization? Because if you're working in a Muslim country, mm-hmm. uh, the world, local World Vision staff is going to be Muslim. Um, how, how missionally, and uh, talking about the Great Commission, how does World Vision tangibly straddle that tension of sharing Christ without or sharing aid and relief and help and development without an agenda, without a, without a bait and switch, mm-hmm. but then also, you know, staying true to the founding mission of the organization where, you know, spreading the gospel. Yeah. yeah it, and it is a fine line. Um, 
you know, I sometimes say you can't go to downtown Kabul in Afghanistan and set up a projector and show the Jesus film. You know, <laughs> yeah, right. you'll be in prison or worse uh, within an hour. Um, but you can go in to help the poor. Uh, you can go in to respond to a disaster. You can go in to work on education and education of girls and different things. And so we do walk a line. You know, we, um, we like to say we don't proselytize. If you look at the actual definition of proselytization, it's when you use coercive methods to uh, force someone to change their religion. In other words, I'll give you food if you'll come to church. Right. You know, right. I, I'm using a quid pro quo. And we just won't have any part of that. We call it unethical witness. That's unethical. We just, our, our strategy is we just go and demonstrate the love of Christ to people. Um, in some countries which are predominantly Christian, we can be much more open in, in speaking about faith. If we go to Bolivia or Honduras, you know, it's a largely Christian country, Christian culture. We can be very open. We can have vacation Bible schools for kids. We can do all of that. But there's a lot of countries where you can't do that. It, it, it's just inappropriate in that context, and it might be illegal. And so we just love people. Uh, we care for people. We do hire Muslims in some places. We require all of our leaders to be Christian uh, because we think that's important to maintain our Christian identity and our witness. Uh, but uh, you can't work in many of these countries if you don't hire uh, indigenous people who are largely Muslim or could be Hindu. Or um, And so, but we also, through that relationship, when we have employees from another world religion, uh, we build friendships in the, in the community and in the country. And those staff members are exposed to our Christian faith in a way. And just the things that our organization does, we're like an ambassador for the Christian faith, right? Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I, I, I remember a story from one of our uh, longtime field people who was working in an Islamic Republic. And uh, the head imam uh, of the country said to him, we respect you, you know, you are Christian, we are Muslim, but we respect you because you are people of the book. Mm. In other words, they respect us because we're people that take our scripture seriously. Mm -hmm. We share the Old Testament with Islam. Um, they believe in Jesus as a prophet. And so they had a mutual respect for us because of the sincerity of our faith beliefs that we, we held to. And so that builds bridges between Christian and Muslim, Christian and Buddhist, Christian and Hindu, uh, and then we kind of count on the Holy Spirit to uh, open hearts, open doors, um, and we just try to be ambassadors. You know, on my wall in my Seattle office, I have stenciled 2 Corinthians 5.20, which is, I guess, if I have a life verse, it's probably that, where Paul says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Uh, God is making his appeal to the world through us through followers of Jesus Christ. We are his ambassadors, you know, and, and how does an ambassador act when he's in another foreign place? You know, an ambassador for Christ reflects the values and the beliefs of the one that sent, the one that sent us. And so we become those ambassadors and uh, we plant a lot of seeds uh, for the gospel. There might not be a harvest for 30 years, but right. we're planting a lot of seeds in some of those places. You're, you're outgoing in your role at World Vision, so I'm going to allow you to get into trouble. Um, it's a tense time right now politically, mm -hmm. and um, I, 
you know, we cover a lot of the issues that, you know, the, the next generation is very passionate about. And, and you know, the, the, like you guys deal a lot with refugees and immigrants mm -hmm. and, and serving those with need. And that's in the news a lot right now. Um, what are your thoughts? What, 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 what are we, what should the American church be doing? Because when I look at the American church advocating against helping immigrants and refugees, and then I read scripture, yeah. it doesn't line up. And, and from your perspective, globally, but as an American and as a Christian, what are your thoughts? Like, how do we navigate this yeah. tension that we're in? Well, it, it's extremely delicate and difficult right now. I mean, we're in a very divisive, um, strident time, you know, a lot of deep emotions, a lot of deep feelings. Um, and I, you know, I kind of call people to say, first of all, we are called to be biblically correct, not politically correct. Right. Now, okay. you can be politically correct on both sides of the aisle, right? You can be a politically correct Democrat or a politically correct Republican. Uh, I think God calls us to be biblically correct, not politically correct. So we're Christian first, and we take our first instruction from the teachings of Scripture. Uh, and, and some of them are quite clear, to welcome the stranger, to uh, feed the hungry, to care for the poor, uh, to minister to the least of these, what people Jesus refers to in Matthew 25, uh, to stand up for justice. Um, and so... The other thing I say to people is we have to recognize that the government of any country and the Christians, the church, they're different institutions with different missions. You know, the government's mission is to promote the welfare of its citizens, you know, to protect and promote prosperity for its citizens. That's the job of the government. That's not the job of the church. The job of the church is to care for broken people, to demonstrate the love of Christ, to be ambassadors for the gospel. That's the job of the church. So I, I like to say, let's let the government be the government, and let's let the church be the church, and let's not confuse the two. Uh, the church is not an arm of the government, and the government is not an arm of the church. You know, So we have to recognize that our government has to do something about safe borders and promoting, uh, controlling terrorist attacks in the United States. They have a real serious responsibility to protect us. Um, but the church has a responsibility to care for hurting people. And so... The people that come across our border on the southern border, uh, most of them are fleeing violence. They're fleeing from a horrible situation in their country. Uh, whether or not we grant them citizenship uh, is, is a secondary issue, but we can at least demonstrate compassion to them uh, in the process, right? Uh, now, they may ultimately have to be deported because the government decides we can't just have open borders. We've got to have, you know, but Christians should be there as the hands and feet of Christ, uh, at least caring for those people, you know, caring for them. Uh, refugees, you can argue about whether we should take refugees here or whether we should help them over there. Um, even if you don't believe we should admit refugees to the United States, uh, Scripture says we, we help the strangers. So let's go to Lebanon and help them. Let's go to Jordan and help them. Let's be generous to, toward these people who are in desperate circumstances. So uh, I think that challenging line to walk right now is to not let our politics compromise our faith calling, you know. And it's possible to be an American and a Christian uh, and be faithful to both, uh, both identities, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, you can believe in secure borders and, 
and still be a compassionate Christian that helps mm-hmm. people in need. Um, if refugees come to your community to be resettled and the government's already decided that they have been granted asylum, churches have been amazing in coming alongside refugee families, helping them get settled, teaching them the language. Uh, one of my board members was a Vietnamese refugee uh, mm-hmm. in 1979, three and a half years old. He came here with 11, uh, 10 brothers and sisters, his mother and father. And because a little church in Arkansas adopted that family, all 13 of them became Christians. Mm. Uh, and little Vin, three and a half years old, um, uh, grew up valedictorian of his high school, went to Harvard and Harvard Medical School, and now he's a cancer surgeon in Colorado. Wow. He was a refugee in 1979. And a lot of Americans didn't want them here, um, but a church took them under their wing, and that whole family is an amazing family of Christians now. Uh, giving back to our country in remarkable ways. So it's possible to be both, to be an American and to be a Christian and not compromise your Christian values. You talked about apathy earlier, and I think um, a lot of of our audience at Relevant, uh, you know, they're very passionate about justice issues or passionate about life issues because of their faith. You know, Mm -hmm. they're they're pro-life, they're holistically pro-life. And, you know, if you were to define a holistic perspective on pro-life um, from an issue standpoint, you would have, you know, life and human dignity. You would have, you know, um, standing up for those who can't stand up for themselves, so from the womb to child trafficking to, you know, that that stream of pro-life. And that's more easily called pro-life. But then you have poverty issues as a life issue. You have preventable disease as a life issue. You have, um, you know, violence and war as a life issue. You have creation care as a life issue. And when you look at it politically, and you if you were to define a holistic perspective of pro-life from a faith perspective as those five major kind of genres or issues, one party would be pro-life in one of those, and one party would be pro-life in four of those. And so then our generation looks at it and says, well, Jesus cares about all of those, and I don't know what party to align with. And you know, I don't want to see babies slaughtered, but I don't want to see, you know, people dying of disease and though he can save them. I don't know what to do politically. I don't know how to advocate. I don't, and so the apathy sets in because I can't fix it. I can't, I don't know how to get involved. There's no Christian party. What would you say to this generation about kind of political involvement from a faith compulsion? Well, I mean, it's a real dilemma. Um, and most of us would, if we could design the ideal candidate, it would be a little from this party, a little from this party, and maybe a little from somewhere else. Uh, (laughs) And uh, that would be our ideal candidate, but we we are almost never confronted with ideal choices. So uh, first of all, I think we have to accept the fact that politics is only a small part of life, right? What I do with my life, what I have the agency to do does not depend on my elected officials. Um, I can sponsor a child in Somalia. I can uh, bring clean water through Charity Water or World Vision to a whole village of, of people. Um, I can work at the homeless shelter in my city. Um, you know, I can do drug rehabilitation counseling or support an organization that does, you know, to get people off opioids. Um, so it's, it's a cop-out to say, well, you know, our politics is broken, so what can I do? You know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm just a victim of divisive politics in America. Well, the way the world changes is 
people like you and me and people listening to this uh, you know, video or broadcast, um, we, have, we can do a lot of things. You know? uh, I could have been at Lenox, China in 1998 you know, lamenting the politics. Oh, you know, Bill Clinton's not doing this or that. And, uh, uh, but instead, I had an opportunity. Maybe I could do something. You know? And so I left my corporate career. I took this job at World Vision. And I like to think in 20 years, I've made a difference in the world because I've invested my life in following Christ uh, into the least of these communities where the least of these live. And so, uh, you know, there's an old saying, you know, don't curse the darkness, light a candle. Um, so my message to young Christians is start lighting your candles because if you're, if you're waiting for your political leaders to redeem the situation, mm-hmm. you're going to wait a long time. Uh, because politics, by its very nature, is kind of a broken reality and a broken system. Um, and uh, But, you know, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom does not depend on politics. Jesus never petitioned the Roman Senate. You know, he never sought political power. Uh, he knew that the real power was spiritual power from one human being to another, uh, transforming the lives of people that he encountered and just his life example, um, almost every person Jesus reached out to was an outcast, mm. a leper, the Samaritan woman, a tax collector, a former prostitute. Uh, they were all the unsavory characters right. of his day, which horrified the religious leaders. Right. Why is he having dinner with this person? Why is he touching a leper? Why is he doing these things? He was sending us a message that this is what I'm all about. I'm about the redemption of the human soul uh, that everybody is in now. Everybody has access to uh, God's forgiveness and God's love. And so as his ambassadors, you know, we have that opportunity uh, with every person we encounter. Last question. You, 20 years, you've served um, the church and, and the world in your position. You're now handing the baton to new leadership and, and, then, and essentially, you're handing the baton to the next generation yeah. that coming up. What would be your hope and your dream that you would like to see happen in the next 20 yeah. years? Well, um, these are exciting times uh, for reasons that probably most people would be surprised to hear. But uh, last year, Nicholas Kristof, the New York Times columnist, wrote a column called The Best News You Haven't Heard. And he's written this column a couple times in the last few years, different versions of it. But essentially what Christoph is saying, and it's true, is that more people have been lifted out of extreme poverty in the last 25 years than at any time in human history. Now, if you read the headlines, you are probably depressed about the state of the world, right? There's terrorism, there's ISIS, there's civil wars, there's famine, there's you know, climate change, there's all of these horrible things that we read about. But underlying those headlines are uh, the facts that child mortality has been cut in half since 1990, mm-hmm. reduced by more than half. Under five child mortality, used to be 35,000 children died every day of preventable causes. Now it's around 16,000, so more than half. Clean water, two billion people, two billion people have gained access to clean water since 1990. Mm-hmm. There's only 650 million left that don't have access to clean water you know, somewhere near their home. Um, maternal mortality and childbirth. Childbirth was often a death sentence for women in the developing world. Um, that's been cut in half. Malaria cases have been reduced. AIDS has been brought under control. Almost every statistic of extreme poverty is going in the right direction and has been greatly reduced, uh, literally in our lifetimes. Um, in our lifetimes, I believe that it's possible by the year 2030 or thereabouts 
that the most extreme poverty on our planet could be virtually eliminated, uh, virtually eliminated. Now, there's always going to be some form of poverty because it's kind of our human nature. Uh, there will be poverty. But what Bono calls stupid poverty, poverty that's preventable, uh, it costs $50 to bring clean water to a person for life. $50 to bring clean water to a person for life. That's preventable poverty, right? Um, that in our lifetime, we could see a world that doesn't have any more of this most extreme kind of poverty. And the church, just with our resources in the United States, we have the ability to do this. I gave a talk at the Q conference a couple of years ago, and I talked about the 1% solution, that if American Christians just increased their giving by 1% of their income, it would create billions and billions and billions of dollars, and we could eradicate the clean water crisis. We could eradicate malaria. We could achieve universal education globally. Um, we could build a thousand seminaries. We could, the things that we could do would be amazing with just a tiny little sliver of, of our resources. So I, I'm very optimistic about what's possible because I've seen just the progress in 20 years. Uh, we changed the world and we can keep doing it, but it takes all of us to make a commitment. Uh, we've got to give, we've got to serve, uh, we've got to advocate, but we can do it. Thank you for your prophetic leadership in your time at World Vision. It's, it's been an honor talking to you today. Thank yeah. you for coming. Well, thanks, Cameron. I hope a whole generation of younger people will maybe be inspired to invest their lives in ways that really change the world and because uh, they can do it. That was former World Vision president, Rich Stearns. He's written several books worth getting, but if you're looking for somewhere to start, get The Hole in Our Gospel. Hey, make sure to tune in to Unedited next week when my guest will be indie icon, Father John Misty. I sat down with him at his LA home to talk about his journey growing up in the church, going to Christian college, thinking he was going to go into the ministry, and then walking away and rethinking everything. It's a fascinating, vulnerable, candid conversation. Trust me, you won't want to miss it. Hey, if you like this episode of Unedited, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We have an incredible lineup of guests coming this season. You won't want to miss them. Also, I'd love your help spreading word about the show. I appreciate the feedback we're seeing, the reviews and the ratings, and, and, and so many of you spreading it on social media. It makes a big difference for a new show, and it's been a lot of fun seeing uh, your feedback. Thanks so much. Keep it up. Well, I'm Cameron Strang. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time. Relevant Podcast Network.